What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here with you, and thanks for joining us for another amazing episode. Excited for this one because it's a topic that you all know I am extremely passionate about. I do it as a profession or one of my professions, and I integrate it into all areas of my life, and it's something I think can help everyone, and that is coaching. Coaching can take on many different forms, but in my opinion, at its core, it comes down to asking great questions, asking different questions, and finally getting different answers, the ones that create progress or help change or get you to where you need to go. So today we are speaking with Michael Bungay Stanier. It's a tough one. It's His, his name's interesting. There's no hyphen there, but that I asked him. This is how it is. Michael Bungay Stanier. And he is author of the new book, The Coaching Habit. Say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. But in fact, Michael is much more. He's also author of a book called Do More Great Work which is perhaps his best known, and three other books as well, five in total. He is a senior partner at his company, Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. Their focus is on helping time crunch managers coach in 10 minutes or less, and their Fortune 500 clients include TD Bank, Kraft, Gartner, and VMware. Before Box of Crayons, Michael spent time inventing products and services as part of an innovation agency and working as a management consultant on large-scale change. I really want to have Michael on. I had a chance to read this book actually prior to even asking him to be on the show, 
And I think it's one, look, even if you're a leader or a manager, of course, this is great stuff to know. How do you ask the right questions? How do you get more out of your people? And how do you be an effective leader through utilizing coaching skills? However, as an individual, also extremely important stuff. And we talk about that in the interview. And then finally, in the interview, we go into other stuff, such as just content creation in general. How do you know if it's worth it? Should you do it? Do you want to write a book? Should you? Do you want to start a podcast? Should you? He's also a podcaster, by the way. And also things like what does he believe got him to where he is? And we also hear a few book recommendations from Michael that I thoroughly endorse. Going to turn it over here to Michael in a minute. Remember, we are at Smart People Pod on Twitter. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter, which you can find at smartpeoplepodcast.com, bottom right-hand corner. And remember, folks, in case you haven't heard, we are now on a bi-weekly schedule. Therefore, we are releasing every other week. Let us know what you think about that, by the way. Send us an email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. How are things going? How's the content work for you? We hope it serves you well. We hope you enjoy it and it makes your day a little better and your brain a little smarter. Now let's get on with the interview with Michael Bungay Stanier as we discuss many things, including his book, The Coaching Habit. Enjoy. Well, Michael, first, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule uh, to be on our show. Uh, look, you know, I am so happy to be here. How, do, how could I not want to hang out with smart people? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I agree with you on that. That's why we started it. Let's get a bunch of smart people together. Exactly right. <laughs> so this will be fun. Well, you know, I want to make the main topic of our episode uh, your pretty new book, The Coaching Habit. I have had a chance, actually, before we even decided to have you on the show, I had a chance to read it. A fantastic book. As many Thank of you. my listeners know, you know, I'm... Uh, extremely passionate about coaching, I'm trained through CTI, which I learned you are, and we can talk about that. But so I, I definitely want to get into that. But first, uh, you have a, an interesting background, and I'm always it's it's something, it's just something about me. I've always been fascinated in how people get to where they are. So uh, let me first, before we get into too much detail, ask: What do you think is the the one thing? that got you to the point that you are is there anything you can point out whether it be a uh you know a habit or a personality trait or an event that kind of got you to what many would deem this this successful mountaintop right um that's a great question you know um i, I tell you one thing that appears to i've been just part of my genetic makeup from the start is pretty much a healthy sense of self-confidence, a healthy sense of self-belief. I mean, I remember at the age of six and I, and I'm the oldest child and I kind of, kind of told my parents because my local town, Canberra, the capital of Australia, uh, which was, it's still, you know, it's like 300,000 people now. It was half that when I was six years old. So it's a pretty small place, relatively speaking. And they just launched their, that the, the local paper had just launched their local fun runners. Like, you know, it's kind of in the, uh, uh, I'm going to guess the late 70s. So running was just kind of becoming a boomer. It's a 10 kilometer, six mile race. And I'm six and I'm like, I'm going to enter that. And my parents are like, yeah, okay. Um, and I remember my mum telling me, I don't remember this, but my mum telling me that the, the night before I was look, looking worried and she was, 
asked me what was going on. And, I, and my concern was, what happens if I'm leading the race and I don't know where to go? <laughs> and mum was wow. like, you know, I think you're going to be okay. Because <laughs> seriously, <laughs> the chance of the six-year-old winning the 10-kilometer race, you know, not, not that big. Um, That's so amazing. So there's just a, a certain degree of um, – uh, self-confidence and, and by that I mean a willingness to try stuff out and not um, a not worry too much about kind of the rules about can you do this or not doing it and I've always had a, a, a certain tendency to try and go against the against the grain um, and secondly not to worry too much if it doesn't work because it's like you know you try stuff out you can only control the process you can't really control the outcome and you know I can articulate that now but I think I seem to have somehow had that kind of wired into me from a pretty early age that that allows me to do things like I'm going to self-publish my first book or I'm going to apply to become a road scholar or I'm going to seize the captaincy of my local soccer team and that is part of what's helped me succeed. I'm, I'm really glad that that was your answer, um, specifically because I have to admit that I think, especially as I've gotten older, that's been something I've struggled with, which is weird. And the reason I say it's weird is because I had every reason to be extremely confident, starting with, you know, an upbringing where it was like, not only can you do anything you want, but you'll succeed at it. You've got all the talent, blah, blah, blah. Right. Played right. sports was pretty good, had friends. And then I feel like the more I learned about the world and the more I started to know what I don't know, the less confident I got in, in my abilities and more I started to rely on learning from others. So I may become as good or as smart or as well-respected as them. So I guess so two questions. You're fundamentally that, pointing out that I'm just more ignorant than you are. I, li <laughs> I like where you're going with this. But, yeah, no, but, but well, to your point, there's a yeah. degree that, that naivety helps. <laughs> yeah. Know, well, I mean, actually, okay. I was going to ask that is, is, you know, one of the things I, and, and I, I say this kind of, you know, I don't know, take it how you want, but some of it seems like whenever people say, no, you just got to believe in yourself. I go, yeah, but I'm very realistic and I, I'm, have a lot of self, uh, I do a lot of self appraising and it's easy for me to see what I don't know. And I wonder if mm. that's a bad thing. I, you know, I think, I think what we're looking at is that we are all complex human beings. So there's a degree of, um, it can help not to know stuff and not to go, I need to know what the rules are so I can follow them. So, you know, I, in university, I actually got an academic article published uh, on on the topic I was writing on in my master's degree in in literature, and I, and I was like pretty excited about that. So I was telling people, you know, I sent it off to a bunch of journals, and one of them picked it. So that was cool. And all my academic friends who knew about this stuff said, "That's you can't do that. You can only send it to one journal at a time. That's you know multiple submission. That's terrible." And I'm like, I had no idea, but apparently I have an article published and you don't. <laughs> so that <laughs> that helps. But you know, I I think there is something about well, Viktor Frankl and, you know, his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, what I, I have, you know, honestly, this is one of those books that everybody, you think you should have read and I actually haven't read it. But <laughs> here's what I think is in there. Um, or maybe it's somebody derived from, from this book, which is they're talking about uh, prisoners of war and who survived being interred and who didn't. And what was interesting, it wasn't the optimists. The optimists actually died early because they're like, we're going to be out by Easter. 
and they're not out by Easter. So, okay, we're going to be out by the middle of the year, and they're not out by the middle of the year. And we're going to be out by Christmas, and they're not out by Christmas. And eventually they give up hope and they die. The people who survived, the people who flourished, were the people who were clear-eyed about the reality. I am locked up in a prisoner of war camp, and I'm unlikely to, to get out anytime soon, but were nonetheless thoroughly optimistic about the overall outcome. I will get out, of, I will survive this, and I will get out of this. So I think there's this piece to say that it is useful to understand life and the world and, the, and understand the complexity of the world and understand, you know, for instance, just how much good luck is involved in succeeding. I mean, you know, you can look at my resume and I go, look, I've got books and I've got a wrote scholarship and I've got this and I've got that. I'm on some sort of smallish hillock top. I'm not sure it's a mountain. Let's call it a hillock. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's there's been some smart choices and a whole lot of hard work and some talent involved in that and just a whole lot of good luck. I mean, just a whole lot of good luck. Um so there's a degree, and right down to the fact that, you know, I'm a white male who's six foot three. You know, so genetically I've, got, I've won a lottery, you know, based on that. Um, uh, so it's just understanding that, that that's the truth and there's some reality around that. But also recognizing the difference between data and judgment. You know, what's the, what are the facts and what do I make up about the facts and how much that I make up is actually true and how much of it is projection or uh, you know, ways of protecting yourself or whatever that might keep you more limited in what, what you do. So for me, it's a combination of what I strive for. And I wish I could say that this was true all the time, but it's not. But what I strive for is like, try and be realistic about what's going on. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It, I was cracking up the thing you said about uh, Victor Frankl's book, because I actually I have read it. Um, I have it sitting right next to me. I read it once. There are right. people that are like, it's one of those books you need to read a million times. I, I mean to. Yeah. Uh, but I just love well, actually, the I fact. figured they've read it a million times. So they've <laughs> kind of got me covered. Yeah. I love the fact that you were like, I don't know. I mean, I think this is why. But you, you were kind of <laughs> spot on with your analysis there. And um, and, and I I'm. I love that idea because I think I've got the first part nailed. And I think there's a lot of people. Here's why I'm going down this rabbit hole. I think there's yeah. a lot of people uh, that, you know, are striving to be successful. I've seen it in my coaching and and yeah. um, that kind of have that that realism down. Right. They understand their their strengths, their weaknesses, et cetera. But then the optimism that that comes behind, you know, I will figure it out. And sometimes I think of that now as resilience. And I, I know there's actually been a lot of talk about resilience recently, and we had a guest on, yeah. Ryan Holiday, who wrote a book about it. And it's sure, really great. I know Ryan, and it's a great book. It is, it is. Yeah. Um, given that you're a coach, you know, do you have any tips, recommendations, things, exercises that people might be able to do to start taking that, that second step, which is, although at the moment it might seem like this or that, uh, I, you know, you can build up that muscle to work towards what you want with, uh, optimism and passion. Uh, let me, let me throw a few things out there. Some of these may be useful, some not so much. Um, but part of it is a mindset for me. And this came into focus for me some years ago when I was in Istanbul and I came across this kind of stubby little stone thing kind of buried a little bit, but kind of the heart of Istanbul. And I, you know, I was 
in tourist mode, so I stopped and I took a look, and it was amazing. It, it sort of said as a little sign at the base of it, this was the marker, the pillar that stood at the heart of the Ottoman Empire, you know, one of the great empires. And, of course, the empire has fallen, the, the column has fallen, it's now just kind of like a bit of a misshapen lump. And I was like, wow, that's, a, that's, that's that empire, it's come and it's gone, nothing lasts. Um, but then I went to the, I think it's called the Tokai Palace, which is one of the great sult- sultanic you know, places in Istanbul. And I was wandering around the museum there, and part of what was in the museum was this um, Ming uh, China from, uh, you know, porcelain from China that had somehow survived, you know, A, traveling from China to Istanbul, um, and then, you know, walls and empires rising and falling, and this delicate, delicate piece of uh, porcelain was was still there, 800 years old, and it survived. And I say all of that just to say, um, you know, honestly, we have no idea <laughs> what we're going to do that's going to last, what's going to stick, what's going to have impact. So hold everything we do lightly and with a sense of, you know what, this this too will pass. Um you know, there's a book that I love by a writer called Bill Bryson, who's known mostly as a travel writer, and he's hilarious. He's the, one of the funniest writers I know. But he wrote a science book called um, A Short History, History of, of Nearly, nearly Everything. Everything. One yeah. of my favorite books in the world. Exactly. Yes. Um, and, his, and, you know, his purpose is to try and make you go, you know, science, which we all have been kind of <laughs> traumatized by, by at high school, is actually amazing, and it is amazing. But what's really amazing is, for me, just how unlikely it is that we are all alive as human beings on this planet. Because, I mean, as you, as you know, you know, there's all these things that, if they just went left instead of right, would mean that uh, you know, hum- humanity wouldn't exist. I mean, two ex- quick examples. Um, I know this is a completely random stream of thought, but you know, the planet Earth has a moon. That's no surprise to anybody. But what's unusual is that it's a much, much bigger moon than any other planet in our solar system. I mean, it's just, you know, a, a much more significant chunk of real estate up there. Most planets have tiny little moons. Um, why is that important? Well, the thing is it works as a kind of stabilizing force on the planet, which means that we spin around a steady axis here on, on Earth. And why that matters is we're spinning on a steady axis, kind of helped by the gravity of the moon, means that we actually have predictable seasons, uh, we, you know, winter, summer, fall, and so on. And what that means is that we actually have predictable growing seasons. And what that means is that civilizations can work because actually we know how to grow food. If we didn't have a moon, we wouldn't have a steady axis, which means we wouldn't have steady seasons, which means basically human beings might exist, but... Uh, civilization probably wouldn't because it would be a constant battle to find food because it would be entirely unpredictable how it, how it grew. Or, or things like we, we, you know, where uh, we have a molten core to the planet, which means we have tectonic plates. You know, so everybody knows this, you know, plates move around, mountains form, trenches appear. Why does that matter? Well, look, it means that our, the, the surface of the planet is constantly forming and reforming. If it didn't, what would happen is it would just gradually wear down until everything's flat. And if that happened, the Earth would be just co- be covered in like two miles of water. We'd all be underwater. So again, 
some sort of life might exist, but it's unlikely you and I would be doing a podcast at the moment. Mm. Did you get that out of Bill Bryson's book? Those are both out of Bill Bryson's book. I mean, and- honestly, but it's so crazy. That's, I would say, and I, I almost, when people ask, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite this, that? I can never answer. I think that's my favorite book I've ever read. And yes. I've read a ton of books. Yeah, it's, it's, it's right up there in my top five for sure. Wow. For, for the same reason. So well, all of this is a very long answer to your question, which is how do you stay resilient or optimistic? And for me, it's a sense of, look, stop holding everything with so tight and with such importance. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter that much. Try some stuff out and see how it goes. And at the same time, and here's the tension, which is understand what's at risk and be smart about doing that. So my friend Pam Slim, who has written a number of great books, um, but from her I got this idea of a side hustle, which is if you're starting something, if you want to try something out, do it as a side hustle. Keep your day job until you figure out how the side hustle works, whether it is going to work, how to make it really work, and then when you've kind of figured it out, then kind of commit to something. So, for instance, when I self-published my first book eight years ago, um, kind of pre the, the real craze for self-publishing. And it was a kind of slightly complicated book because it's a self-coaching book with fancy flip sections. It, I knew it was going to cost me $30,000 to, 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 to publish this. I had just inherited $30,000 from my grandfather dying. I was like, you know what, I'm going to invest this money and if I lose it, that's fine. I may never see this money again. It's a, it's a gamble, but it's a, it's a controlled risk. So hold it lightly, but be aware, but make sure that you stay safe. Wow. That's fantastic. And uh, a couple notes there. One is that the side hustle idea, I'm a huge fan of. I've talked about it actually at length on the podcast a number of times because I've done it numerous times and it's been my safe transition to now doing what I love on a daily basis. And couldn't have happened the other way. And then another is I'll recommend uh, we interviewed a guest recently, Patrick McGinnis. We had him on as a webinar as well. Uh, he wrote a book called The 10% Entrepreneur. And it's a really uh, almost step-by-step way of figuring out how, not how to do your side hustle. It's not about like how to make money. It's about how to figure out which type of entrepreneur you are. And if it's 10%, meaning do it on the side, um, some actionable ways to do it. So I just thought yeah. that was that was pretty relevant. I love that. Yeah, I mean, but essentially, be bold, but don't be stupid. <laughs> right, right. And it, you know, it makes sense. I recently posted something on Facebook about it was a video, and essentially, the long and short of it is, we are just tiny beings clinging to a large rock floating around space. And it's right. like when you use that analogy or metaphor, you know, it just. Anyways, um, one of the things, as you talked about writing your own book and stepping into the self-publishing world, and now you have how many books? Three, four? Uh, five, five, actually. Wow, yeah. okay, five books. I know you do speaking. You do a lot of stuff. In a sense, you could say you create content. I don't uh, want to yes. say you're a content creator. I think, I mean, you could, but some people get a, I don't know, that that's <laughs> all you do, and it's not really. But right. as somebody who's putting this stuff into the world, uh, that's something I want to be doing. I feel like I've learned enough over the past 10, 20 years through others, through my own experiences to do that. And I know there's a lot of people that feel that way. Here's my struggle and tell me what you think. There's also a bit of uh, ego involved in saying other people need to hear what I have to say and it hasn't already been said. So for example, I pulled out my phone yesterday, I opened the app Medium and there are just 
I mean, you can just scroll forever with articles about anything from people who feel like they should be read. And I struggle because I was like, you know what? I don't want to read anything. There's nothing new here for me. And I just got a little frustrated. Did you ever have that thought? You ever battle that like, ah, does the world need to hear me? Is this already done? Am I new? Is this just me selling something? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I've got a a few thoughts on this. So the first is, I think it's really worthwhile to ask yourself, for the sake of what am I creating this content? You know, is it like, I've just got to say this thing. I don't really care who reads it or not. I just need it out in the world. Um, I, am I doing it for business reasons? You know, this is my ma- part of my marketing strategy for whatever it is that I'm I'm trying to do. But there's a whole bunch of kind of uh, it's. I mean, content creation is hard and a bit miserable, and um, and hard to differentiate yourself because everybody's gone. Oh, content creation—it's a good thing. I should do it. Right. And so, to your extent, you know, it's like it doesn't matter what you're scrolling through. There's too much content. Um, so be really clear at the start, which is why are you doing this thing that you're doing and who do you actually want to read it? Um, if anybody, you know, and you know, the, the, the more extreme version of that is the number of people who I talk to who go, yeah, I really want to write a book. And I'm like, are you sure you want to write a book? Because I tell you, it's, it's miserable writing a book. I mean, you write, you work really hard and you write a first draft and it's a kind of crappy first draft. But you're like, okay, I've heard that first drafts are always shit. So you go, okay, well, I'm going to write another. And you write a second draft, and that's also not very good. And then you write a third draft, and then you go, okay, is this enough? Should I work harder at this? If you really care about it, you're going to write an eighth draft. And by the time you're writing your eighth draft, you hate yourself, and you hate this book, and you're pretty sure there's no nothing good here at all. Um, and then you finally get it published somehow, and, you know, if you're like, I, I mean, the statistic I've heard, who knows if it's just made up or not, is that 93% of books sell less than 1,000 copies. Right. So you've now spent you know, 10,000 hours writing something that less than 1,000 people is probably going to read. Um, do you want to do that? Is that the best use of your time? So the first thing to ask is just, do I really want to be a content creator? Do I want to do this? And for the sake of what am I doing this? And then... I think there's something about if you're doing it just as a, look, I have figured out that this actually helps drive my business because I'm doing it for business reasons. Make sure that's true. You know, make sure that, you know, you can see a correlation between what you put out there and and how you measure success in your business. And uh, you can then kind of be pretty, pretty kind of transactional about it. Just roll up your sleeves and pump the stuff out, get it out there. Um if it's something beyond that, then it's like, how do I create something that is I'm proud of? Um, and, you know, you, right at the start, you're like, tell me a bit about your background and what forms you. And for me, I, I mentioned that, you know, I, I've always liked to kind of go against the grain to zig when others go, zag. And I do sit and wonder, I go, how do I create content that isn't kind of just so here's an acronym, uh, taboo. Taboo stands for true and bleedingly obvious. You know when you read an article <laughs> and you're like, this article has been written 93,000 times already and this contributes nothing in addition. Exactly. You know, there's, no, there's nothing in the voice, there's nothing in the metaphor, there's nothing in the examples, there's nothing in the model. 
there's there, it's just a it's just a kind of collection of other people's media mediocrity, and I really wish there was less of that <laughs> right. in this world because it's just a lot of mediocrity. Um, so for me, I'm also going. How, well, can I find a new metaphor? Can I find a new story? Can I find a new format? Can I find a new twist on what's out there already? Because um, if I'm going to create content, um, I, I want to feel that it's got some value to add to the world. Right. Um, but yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard because we're at the moment we're at kind of like I don't know, peak content. Everybody's like, content creation is the thing. So now people like you and me are busy creating content and hoping some people consume it <laughs> and read it and listen to it and hear it. Um, and just like in book publishing, there's a few people who are doing really well. So if you're a Tim Ferriss and you're like, yeah, my podcast gets one billion listeners and then there's a very small B list and then there's a vast amount of podcasts that don't get listened to anybody. Right. No, I know. And people say, oh, I want to do a podcast. And it's one of the things I recommend. I do. I don't know why I say this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Talk through it. Is I say, yeah, everyone, you should do it. You should make a podcast, which therefore would be refuting or going against what I just said. Yeah. But the reason is because the self-learning that comes from it, in my opinion, is more important than what others gain from it at first. And then as it moves along, if it strikes a chord, then you have the ability to uh, impact others and you try to do it in a way that makes sense for you. And that's right. just out of personal experience. I think maybe that's why people want to write books. But the flip side, and I'm going to be hypocritical, and you know this goes against what I just said, is then the consumer has to sort through all of this stuff to try to figure out what's good. So I don't really know the answer. Again, this is like, I'm just talking through it with you. Yeah, well, you know, I do. I mean, I have a podcast, The Great Work Podcast. Um, it's been going for five or six or seven years. I'm not sure how. We 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 put out at least 300 episodes, so we've done it a lot. I have I don't really know who listens to it. I don't track the numbers on it. I don't worry too much about where it is on the lists of podcasts. I do it in part because I reach out to people who intrigue me, and I get to talk to people. So, you know, yesterday I interviewed a woman called Maria Konnikova who wrote a book called The Confidence Game, um, and it's all about the how con artists work and how they set up their, you know, the eight parts to setting up a, an elaborate con and, and what insights that gives us all about being human beings and being on both sides of trying to persuade and trying to be persuaded. And, you know, it's like it's, it's just an interesting book and an interesting woman, and I just enjoyed the conversation. I know that why I know why I'm doing it, and that's, I think, what it comes down to, which is, yeah, sure, do a podcast, but why? You know, for, for the sake of what? Are you doing a podcast? Mm -hmm. Because if it's to go, this is going to be my big breakthrough and it's going to drive my business, the answer is probably not. Maybe, but probably not. So what other reasons are you doing this? And if, if it is about you want this to be your breakthrough, how committed – I mean, what does being fully committed to that look like? I mean, again, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's, he's like, I'm going to build my YouTube base. Um. You know, he's put out six video, four videos over seven months. I think combined viewing of those four videos is about four hundred people. Hmm. Um, and he and he's like, you know, that you're not committed to this. Like, if you're committed to it, you're pumping out a video a week, and you're learning and you're refining and you're figuring out how to get people to watch it. And you're, you know, you're you're, you're all in. 
if you're dabbling, that's fine. Dabble away, but don't expect it's going to have the impact that you hope for. Right. Actually, I think, you know, that's all great advice. And I know, again, just knowing our audience, so many people out there are soaking it up because first it was blogs, then it was podcasts, it's books. I mean, you know, this whole idea of content is is really pervasive in society. And I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just always great. I kind of ask this question, these questions fairly often to those whose content I respect and put out a lot of it because I want to kind of, you know, sift the, what do they say, you know, the shaft from the wheat or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the shaft from the wheat. Yeah, exactly. There you go. But I want to move on now because I want to talk about coaching habit. Uh, And the first thing I want to say is, you know, I think this book is very reflective of your overall brand. And first of all, would that be a fair statement or correct me if I'm wrong there? No, you know, it's, it's, it is. And I tell you why, because uh, even though I published other books with more traditional publishers, we ended up self-publishing this book because after two years, I couldn't get my publisher to be interested in it. Wow. But what was brilliant about that is it turned into something that I could absolutely say, I have shaped this and it is as good a reflection of me and the box of crayons brand and what we stand for as I could possibly hope for. So okay. it is, you're seeing a really strong reflection of what we stand for and how we want to show up in the world. Well, that's perfect. And and the reason I want to ask that is because, you know, that gives us a little context. And earlier you said, you know, be really clear on why you're creating the content you're creating. So I want to know, like, what's your mission or goal or what made it clear for you? And you say, this is it. This is why I'm doing it. Here's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, so it was a combination of things, which is, uh, <laughs> so I wrote, that, so as you heard, five books, this is my fifth book, and honestly, the first four books were relatively easy for me to write. You know, I kind of got the idea, I kind of figured out the shape of the book and the arc of the book and the structure of the book, and then I filled in the the, the buckets of content that were required and went through the process of trying to make it better and refining it. But it was relatively straightforward, certainly compared to this book, which I, I wrote three or four complete and bad versions of this book before I finally wrote this version, which is a really good version of this book. Um, so part of the motivation was I kept I, I kept not being able to walk away from it. It kept going, you know, this this is the thing you want to be doing because it's going to have good impact in the world. Second thing is it's a re- it's just a ve- it, for us it's a really useful business driver. So we have a business model that uh, plays into this. So, you know, box of crayons, uh, our overall mission is ha- helping people do less and organizations do less good work and more great work. But our real speciality is giving busy managers the tools so they can coach in 10 minutes or less. And that's what our programs teach people, how to coach in 10 minutes or less if you're a busy, slightly overwhelmed manager. So what I knew would happen with this book is that, one, it would become part of the collateral of our programs and help differentiate our programs further and build up our reputation in this field. Here's the book on coaching and our belief in 10 minutes or less. Secondly, um, more hopefully, I guess, well, like if this book takes off, it will generate people who are interested in our programs and they'll reach out to us. So it'll become a contributor to the marketing approach to our book. So I was really conscious of, look, 
if we sell no books whatsoever through traditional channels like Amazon and bookstores and airports, that's okay because it'll be part of our collateral and still be a sales tool that we can use. But if, if it does sell through these different channels, then we have the bonus of it being a marketing tool for our programs. The interesting thing here is when you talk about the coaching habit, I think, well, I guess the question I want to ask is for those that hear coaching and think of it in, you know, I think personally there's two types of people. There's the, the ones who are in a leadership position who are well aware of the benefits of coaching. Yeah. And then there is the individual who thinks of it as just the need to get better and how somebody can help me do that. The coaching habit tends to take on more of that managerial or leadership approach. However, it can be it, it can be used uh, hugely in an individual way. So why did you choose to go the route you did of let's focus on how we can train leaders or managers to kind of quickly work on this coaching skill? Yeah, yeah, your insight's spot on. Uh, it, it's a book that is useful for all sorts of people in all sorts of fields. We've had, you know, parents and educators and religious orders and the police and people in halfway houses with convicted felons all going, we love your book. Um, we want to make it part of how we work around here. But we, I wrote it with a, uh, a specific person in mind, which is a busy manager or leader who's engaged, likes her work, is uh, overwhelmed by it and is looking to try and have more impact in the work that she does, but not by working harder, but by working more thoughtfully and by empowering those around her. So part of it is like just I know who I serve and my primary audience I serve are these busy managers and these busy leaders. Um, the the second piece is that, uh, you, you know, the, here's why I serve those people, which is for – all of us, work is such a big part of our lives. And for many of us, work is not a happy part of our lives, particularly. It's a slightly dehumanizing, slightly draining, slightly I'm a small cog in a big machine experience. And um, when I wrote the first book, Get Unstuck and Get Going, one of the thrilling moments of my life was when uh, an author and a writer I respect and, and who's influenced my work a lot, a guy called Peter Block, uh, he wrote a testimonial, you know, a blurb for that first book, which is so cool for me. And he said, look, coaching isn't a profession. It's a way of being with each other. And when I heard that, I kind of, I didn't, he articulated something that I hadn't even fully realized about myself, which is I'm in this game to try and democratize coaching, make it less of a or oh, you have to have gone to CTI and done your training to become a capital C coach and just recognize that, look, coaching is just a way of showing up and interacting with each other. And when it comes down to it, we don't even need the word coaching. It's like, how do you stay curious a little bit longer and rush to advice giving and action taking a little bit slower so that your conversations and what you end up working on are more valuable and more useful and more powerful? Mm. So I'm, I can't entirely remember what your question was, but I think that's my answer. <laughs> no, no, no. And that's a great way of putting it. While you mentioned it, the CTI thing, you know, I, I think for a while I thought, oh, what is this and why would people need it or, or can you get trained as a coach? And then I, I went through it and I found it extremely useful just for kind of honing your skills. And I think, you know, I was recently uh, going through in my brain this this model of 
what makes somebody good at what they what they do. And I think if you have these three things, and because I'm I'm constantly trying to f- figure out, like, am I there yet? You know, and and I think I've gotten the answer, there. It's... The answer, by the way, is never. <laughs> you're never there. That's true. You're I just... guess. You're just at the latest place, which is where you're at, but you're never there. Yeah, I guess you're right. And and it goes back to that self-confidence thing. You know, are you at the point where you have put in the time and work and effort and all that to, to put something valuable into the world? And the three things I kind of came up with are uh, formal training and then experience doing what you want to do. And then also real world experience that makes you relatable in that. And I feel like the CTI thing uh, does cover that that formal training aspect how did you feel about the process what would you say to anyone out there thinking about you know i like this coaching thing or this sounds good which everyone thinks it sounds good but that's not mm-hmm. the reality all the time you know getting trained as a coach well again i think it's, it's worth asking yourself why am i interested in doing this um if you're thinking to yourself God, i'd love to be a coach um I would treat it as a side hustle first, which is before you invest in a whole lot of money on training, before you invest in kind of giving up your day job and setting up yourself as a coach, try it out a little bit. Because I know lots of people who actually, when they get into coaching, don't enjoy it as a professional. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spend 80% of my time doing this as much as they would think they would like to doing it. And I'm an example of that. I, I know. I did my training, I grew my coaching practice for a while, and then went, you know, this actually isn't as rewarding for me as I thought it would be. I find it a bit too isolating, mm. a bit too lonely. I don't I don't feel like I'm having the impact I could in the world by doing this. So I would test it out. But it comes back to, again, asking why would you like to do that? And why I found the training useful is that it confirmed stuff I already knew and it gave me some structures that I found were useful in in how to do what I was already doing. Mm. So I was using it more as a uh, almost an, uh, an evaluation process, which is where am I and how do I stack up and what, what do I already know and what don't I know and wh- where am I in this the whole scheme of things. It was, a, it was as much a positioning thing for me as it was a I'm, I'm starting from the, from the bottom and building up these skills for the first time. Sure. Well, now that we've kind of set the foundation here, let's go straight into it. The coaching habit, say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. So I'm going to say less and ask more and just say, what is the coaching habit? Brilliant. So here here it is in its essence. It's it's as practical a coaching book as you're going to find. Uh, The first chapter tells you about how to build habits because habits are the building blocks of behavior change. And if you want to do things differently, you have to understand how to change your behavior. And as you heard me say before, I'm trying to get people to be curious a little bit longer and rush to advice giving a little bit slower. And most people are advice giving maniacs. I mean, they don't even know what the problem is, but they've got some (laughs) early thoughts on how to solve it. So I'm just shifting that behavior. So that's why we start with this this piece on habit building. And we draw on Charles Duhigg, who wrote The The Power of Habits and BJ Fogg, who's got a great website called tinyhabits.com, and Leo Babauta from Zen Habits, and a bunch of others to, to inform that. And then the seven key chapters that follow that, are each one of them has a core question. So in this book, how to build a habit, and the seven essential questions that if you get these in your pocket, if you get to use these more regularly, will help you work less hard, but have more impact. 
and then kind of scattered through it are kind of little master classes about how to ask a question well. Everything from, you know, uh, cut out the long rambling lead up to the question, just ask the question, you know, jump to it, to just understanding the power of silence, uh, to, for instance, understanding why asking a question with what is actually and often more powerful than asking a question that starts with how, which is more powerful than asking a question that starts with why. They've all got their places, but what tends to be the question that trumps them all. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I uh, We interviewed Simon Sinek a while mm-hmm. ago. Exactly. And I, I remember him saying, you know, it's funny. So he says, start with why. Uh, I know that's one of his books. But when I asked him a question, he was like, well, let's not answer it or let's not ask it in terms of why is this? Because you'll get an emotional answer. If you right. say something like, what makes this happen? You can get a very, I don't know, logical or well thought out response. Right, exactly. I mean, when you ask the why question, if you don't get the tone just right, um, it can it can put people on the defensive because it's kind of like, why in brackets, the hell are you doing this? <laughs> um And the other thing that tends to happen is if you're asking why, often what you're seeking to do is to learn more about the background so that you can then provide a better answer to the person. But if you're taking it onto yourself to go, my job here really isn't to provide their answer, at least not entirely, it's to help them figure out some of the stuff themselves, then the why question isn't really in service of them, it's in service of you. So that's another reason why I think why is a less effective way to start a question more often. Mm. But, you know, obviously I know Simon a bit and, you know, his book, his best-selling book and his great TED talk, you know, start with why. So I love the fact that he's kind of pushing back on the don't start with, don't, don't ask questions with why. But his, his bigger point, which is, but understand your why. Exactly. You know, what, why are you, what are you here to serve? What's the impact you want in this world? What's the heart? of your endeavor because that allows you to, to build a foundation and be successful. Yeah. And I think it's a very clear distinction that, that needs to be understood. I mean, it's clear in terms of what he uh, was insinuating or meant by that. And um, I don't know. I definitely recommend people both or all three is, you know, check out his YouTube is his Ted talk, read his book or, or check out the interview we did with him. He's big. I'm a big fan of his. Um, I wanted to get to this question, which is, what are, like, train us on asking questions, because either with specifics or a mindset, because questions I have found over the six years of asking them all the time uh, through the podcast and coaching and elsewhere, they're the, the, the strongest way to just gain insight. And I mean that personally, so ask yourself these questions, Correct. and then asking others as a leader. So I'm wondering... You know, what what do you have is in, in terms of your expertise on question asking? And are there things we can translate from either as a leader asking others or as an individual asking ourselves? Okay, I'll give you some of my some of my thoughts, Chris. So the first is ask one question at a time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. often we're like here's a question, here's another question, here's a variation on the first question. Let me ask you a fourth question just here. And it's like, you know, take a breath and rather than, you know, gunning them down by kind of a drive-by questioning episode, uh, figure out what's the most powerful question you can think of and ask them that question. Then after you ask the question, shut up and actually listen to the answer. 
you know, that's actually harder to do than you think because often what most people do is they ask the question, they get them talking, and then they spend the whole time listening to their own internal dialogue about, oh, my God, what's the next question I should ask them? Where's this going? Or why won't they stop talking so I can tell them what to do? So it's like be present and fully listen to the answer. And then the third tip I'd give people is actually to to use one of the questions from the book. It's number two in the book. And we call this the best coaching question in the world. Um, very simple, just three words. And the question is, and what else? Because one of the insights about asking a question is that their first answer somebody gives you won't be their only answer, and it may not be their best answer. So kind of squeeze more out of that initial question. So, you know, one of the questions, another question in the book is the, um, the focus question, which is what's the real challenge here for you? So here's how that could, listen, you go, okay, so because I, I understand what you're saying about this thing that you're working on. What, what's the real challenge here for you in dealing with this? And then I'll listen to your answer. And I'll go, Great. What else? What else is a challenge here for you? And what else is a challenge here for you? Couldn't, is there anything else around here that's a challenge for you? Okay. So what's the, you know, knowing all of that that's going on for you, what do you think is the real challenge here for you? And you can see, you know, I just role modeled there a conversation that would be powerful, would take five minutes maybe, um, and it just involves me asking two questions. What's the real challenge here for you? And what else? And what else? And what else? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? And part of this insight about asking a question is to trust the questions and kind of cut away all the stuff that's getting in the way of it, the elaborate build-up to the question, the I've disguised the real question in amongst eight other questions, the I'm not really listening to your answer, I'm not uh, inviting you to go deeper into your answer, which is what and what else does. As you were talking about those and really bringing me back to coach training, I I will say that uh, trying these out and getting comfortable with them is really important because it is very awkward at first to ask someone and what else because you know, tell me if this is what you see in your experience. They don't necessarily know the answer to that because they're never asked. So right. you have to be able to sit there and not fill that space of silence. Exactly. And of course, most people are like desperate to fill the silence right. after about one seconds of silence. You're like, oh my God, they haven't got an answer right away. That's, ah, I'm failing. <laughs> And another way to reframe it is to go, oh, look how well I'm succeeding because now they're really working. They're mm-hmm. having to think about this answer. They're really having to kind of dig a little bit deeper. And your job is to hold the space for them so that they get to actually go a little deeper and go, okay, what, what is it? What else? And, you know, lots of people, if you're in person with them, they'll kind of look up to the ceiling as they're trying to figure that out. And when they see them doing that, that's when you know things are really working well for you. That's great. And it's funny, I think about in my, I do facilitation, group facilitation, 20, 30, 40 people. And I had to, even with coach training, you know, fall back on that. Because if you ask a question in a group setting and somebody stops at all, then the whole group has stopped. And it's really tough. But, you know, put yourself, try and put yourself in their shoes and think, look, this is a question that would take a little bit of brain power. You can't just fire it off. You know what I mean? I do. And, you know, because I, I do a lot of facilitation myself, I'll give you my top tip facilitation approach to dealing with that, which mm. is 
asking a group of 30, 40 people a question or somebody to answer it in front of that question is actually kind of a high risk thing because what if I get it wrong? What if I don't know the answer? Mm -hmm. What if I look like a fool? Everybody gets diminished by that slightly. So what I tend to do is I say, look, here's a question. Turn to the person next to you and just chat about your answers to that. And, you know, after two or three or four minutes, I'll go, great. So you had a good conversation with your partner. Let's hear from some of you about what you came up with. Sure. Oh, and what yeah. that, lo- that little process does is it allows people to kind of rehearse their answer and also to have everybody deal with the question rather than, you know, somebody sitting at the back of the room going, oh, that's good. Bob's got this. I don't even have to think about it too hard. Mm-hmm. You're really kind of getting, you're making it safer, but more engaging for people at the same time. Absolutely. So many keys to facilitation, but it is a niche that I'm sure not many care to listen to. I don't know. If I'm wrong, email us and and we'll we'll talk more about it. Well, I mean, to your point, I mean, the the skills required in coaching and being more coach-like and being a facilitator because – we all have opportunities to, to facilitate, you know, when whenever we're interacting with other people, you can step into that kind of facilitative mode. They're, they're similar skills, you know, partly giving the other people the power, partly holding the space, partly staying curious, partly being aware of what the outcome might be that you're working towards. These are, these are the same whether you're being a coach or being a facilitator. That's very true. And one of the things I wanted to, wanted to ask you was, you know, the coaching habit, as you said, you start off talking about um, habits, of course. It's in the title. Um, what's one thing, one takeaway our listeners can have, you know, for fear of information overload? One thing, you know what? I do want to build a habit. Uh, maybe it's coaching, but it's something. And you have obviously done some research on this. Yeah. Uh, where's a good place to start? One kind of, hey, do this or try this. So here would be my my tip. I mean, there's there's we have a website called thecoachinghabit.com. There's actually a bunch of things you can grab from that, including a, a nice little report on the kind of six and a half coaching or habit gurus. Um, and uh, I, I point to another great website, tinyhabits.com by BJ Fogg. That's another great ins- uh, place for insights around this. But the two things that have really struck me about building habits, and it's built into the first chapter of the book, is The first is you need to understand the trigger, the thing that sets you off in the old habit so that you can kind of effectively reprogram yourself so that you respond in a different way to that context, that cue, that trigger. If you don't understand what your triggers are, you'll never change your habits because you're already halfway through the habit before you realize what's happening. The second key insight um, is, again, BJ Fogg, um, when you define a new habit, define it as specific as possible. Uh, His thing is that it takes a minute or less to complete. And by defining that micro habit, it's much easier to kind of do it or realize that you haven't done it rather than so many of the times we kind of give ourselves a more abstract, uh, uh, broader, generalized sense of what your habit is. And that becomes much harder for you to deliver upon. That's great. We got some things we can work on here. Michael, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Your most recent book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. I also wanted to give you a minute. You got a lot of stuff out there. You got podcasts, <laughs> books, websites, all that. What, what do you want to tell our, our listeners about? I mean, I'm sure they've enjoyed this conversation. Um, where should they go next? Well, thank you. So if you're curious about the book, thecoachinghabit.com, 
is the place to go for that. And whether you pick up the book or not, um, there's a ton of free resources on that website. So you're welcome to check out the reports and the videos and the other bits and pieces. Um, if you're interested in our programs as an organization, um, boxofcrayons.biz, B-I-Z or B-I-Z, depending on where you live in this world, <laughs> is the place there. And if you're looking to connect on social media, I hang out in two places mostly. One is Twitter, where I'm at Box of Crayons. The other is on LinkedIn, uh, where I'm the only Michael Bungay Stanier. I love it. Again, Michael, thank you so much. And uh, we will be in touch soon when the episode airs. That was fantastic. A great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I'll talk to you later. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael Bungay Stanier. Remember, you can find his book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever on Amazon or at your local bookstore. And don't forget, if you do decide to purchase through Amazon, use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Using our link comes at no cost to you. It's free and easy. When you go to the link, it takes you over to Amazon just as you normally would. You do your shopping and we get a nice little kickback from Amazon that helps keep the lights on here at Smart People Podcast. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review over there. We really do appreciate everybody who has left reviews during the month of July. It's always awesome to see a bunch up there. I'd love to see the same for August. So if you could head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. I would appreciate it greatly. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Just a reminder, we've changed the release schedule to a bi-weekly or twice-monthly. I don't really know how that works, but we're putting out two episodes each month. So if you don't see as many episodes coming out as you've seen in the past, fear not. We're still doing the show. Just tweak the schedule a bit. All right, that's it for me this week. Please stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast. Head over to the site, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Do all the things social media. And we will see you all next week. Next week.